I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome back to the front three. Today it is yet again a top two with Chris. Hennage and I, we're going to be doing the Q&A along with recapping some of the most important events in European football. Chris, you're joining me today to answer the good people, the good people's questions. Uh, how are you doing? I'm not bad, thanks. How are you? Good week? Good week, you know, just getting back into the swing of things in terms of writing. School is over, moving into the World Cup. It's going to be exciting. I think there's going to be a lot of content out there. I'm excited to see what people kind of pump out. I imagine it, it's sort of the same scenario for you. Yeah, it, the the World Cup is interesting. I was talking to Michael Cox about this, the, the mm-hmm. difficulty that you have to try and form very strong opinions very quickly before the tournament starts, which makes the preview stuff hard. Because even, yeah. even if you go back and watch, like let's say, for example, Iran's... Um, qualifying campaign there could be changes in that squad and all this kind of stuff so the tactical stuff i find tends to live in a sort of very small little um ecosystem Um, oh super super tiny and it's exceptionally difficult especially with international teams to like try to pinpoint because you know a manager can make a decision pretty much on a whim and completely change the dynamic of like who's playing who's not going to play how they're going to play, you know how it is. Mm-hmm. 100%. So it's 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 interesting, but you know, that's that's the life we chose, isn't it? But um, one of the more enjoyable parts of the life we chose is doing this podcast. And with that, I think uh, we're going to start with a little bit of European roundup. Not too much, you know, the tail end of the season leading into this World Cup isn't the most exciting thing. I think the only league that is still needs to be decided on the final day is Liga Nosh, uh, the Portuguese league, which I... Uh, you know, haven't watched too much of, but maybe I will now that the the last games are approaching and the league still does need to be decided. Or maybe I'm completely wrong in saying that. Um, but either way, Juventus recently won the league double. Uh, they won the the uh, Coppa Italia recently in a final against Roma. And I think, you know, I'm curious to hear about 
what you think of this, but it's been an interesting season for Juventus for me because I, I've written about Allegri in the past and I think that they've gone some through through some really significant changes as a club um, pretty recently. And I think the transition that Allegri has made has been fantastic, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you the chance to talk about it before I kind of go into a monologue about how, how great I think Allegri is. Yeah, Allegri is great, great in so much as when you replace a coach like they did with Conte, there's always going to be trade-offs and, and things that you maybe try and address or overcorrect even with the new appointee. And I get the sense, the more that we get into the Allegri tenure, that what Juventus saw in him was someone who would manage situations with a little bit more consideration for the big picture. So what I mean by that is Conte is, is great at what he does, but what he does is slam the pedal down until the car is out of gas. That might not always get you to the destination. Um, with Allegri, there's just a little bit more, I would say, appreciation of the fact that, okay, we've got to play for Coppa Italia, we've got the Champions League, we've got these. So do I need to go hell for leather for 90 minutes when we are 10 points clear at the top? Or can I get away with putting some of the reserve guys in and, and trying to play um, with a little bit more almost composure a little bit more of a withdrawn state with that midweek game in mind. Now, granted, this season, it didn't get them as far as they wanted. They got put out by Real Madrid, which was no great shame, although I know some Turin-based supporters of this podcast will say it was a travesty. Um, and so I think things like this Coppa Italia result do kind of reaffirm that for me, that he just seems to to understand that there are multiple battles to fight, and if you throw all these soldiers and I mean figurative soldiers here, behind that one defence point, then it, it's it's going to lead to long problems. And on the flip side, I do feel a bit sorry for Milan because their sort of new revolution has... It's had a lot of big names attached to it, in so much as, you know, Chanlanolu's come in, Kessie's come in, granted not household established names, but the big money spent, Andre Silva, for example, 30-odd million for a player that hasn't... Um, been a regular or at least a regular goal scorer um, and yet you look at the bench and who they can bring on and it's Barini it's a very aging Montalivo they, I just don't think that Milan have that depth yet that they need um, I think it's very much still a year one type project for them in I don't just mean literally I mean in so much as they've had a great influx of early players but now it just needs a little bit of refinement and depth added to it yeah, I mean, I, I think going back to the, the points that you were making there about Allegri, I, I think it's been really a masterful managerial time for him because I, I think really there's one of two ways that you can look at their achievements this season. You can say, you know, Serie A isn't as good as the Premier League because usually people that choose to disrespect the other four European leagues are watchers of the Premier League. Um, you know, it's not as good as the Premier League. They won the double. They win it every year. Who cares? This, that, and the other. But I, I think to, to, to say that would be to completely undermine the, the achievement that, as you alluded to, is like kind of his managerial expertise in managing certain situations, having an eye on, on everything at the same time. And that's kind of the, the important thing here is that as great as, as someone or a team like Napoli has been, and I've certainly highlighted that before, they are the second uh, highest scoring team in La Liga and they're only a, a goal off of the highest scorers which is uh, Lazio and 10 better than the the next best team which is which is Napoli and they've done that by transitioning to a system that you know everybody says oh you know they're not the defensive bulwark we once knew 
but they are still really a really successful team in that. And to, to make that transition from one year to the next, from an iconic defensive system that at the very heart of it featured the, the team that they beat in the Coppa Italia final, um, you know, Milan with, with Bonucci, to lose that player. I don't know how many, many European can, teams can, can lose their best player, make a seamless transition, not only uh, you know, around him and, and around losing him, but really transitioning away from that golden era of of Juventus players with Bonucci, Barzagli, Chiellini, and and Buffon, and you know letting the newer guys come through. Benatia, Chesney has been incredible, um, and and really uh, acclim- acclimating a, a new role to to Chiellini as a as a central part of the a more central part of the defense as, a, as opposed to where he kind of played a, a three role with Bonucci and Barzagli. So I think to do that so seamlessly is is really credit to his ability, and I. I know there's a lot of whispers about how he might go to Arsenal next and how, you know, where he, he might do it next. But I think to only really look at, at his achievements as par for the course, um, given Juventus' success, is, is a little bit of an underdressing or an underselling of, of his time at Juventus. So I think people, um, you know, although Juventus have a, have a massive advantage over a lot of Serie A teams need to need to take a look at that and say wow this this guy has done something really incredible but anyways moving on um really the only second piece of business that we need to cover is something near and dear to my heart and that is Yaya Toure leaving Manchester City we were kind of talking about this before we hit record but you know I was like I sort of in a, in a Freudian slip sort of way, said that he had retired. Um, but obviously he's going to play either for a different team in the Premier League or, or go elsewhere. And and I think, you know, as you said, once you kind of leave the top, you you are basically retiring when you when you had a, a level um, that Yaya once did. I mean, what do you what do you make of his departure before I start crying and, and talking about how much I love him? <laughs> um, his departure marks, I would argue, the the end of the first chapter of the new Man City. Um, I think it's very easy to point to maybe the Taksin Shinawatra era or what have you as, as the change in which Man City, even that sort of Vinnie Company, um, Rocky Santa Cruz type era. But I think things didn't start getting serious until they dropped four. Was it 42 million on um, Torre from Barcelona? Because for me, that was... That was a moment where I thought, okay, this is this is a serious club here. This is not because you have to remember. Yes, we look at Company now as a sensational defender, but I would not say he had the standing in the game at that point when he was at Hamburg that Torre did with Barcelona in terms of achievement, if nothing else. Um, and I think you can certainly tell as many um, bad stories about Torre as you want in terms of the birthday cakes, the agents, the needing to renew his contract every time he blinked. At the same time, you can also point to so many big goals where a game had stagnated, where there was little space to find, and he very much just bulldozed through. He he made a space where there wasn't one previously. Um, I remember goals at uh, Bracets in James's Park, the, the year they won the league under Mancini. Um, I feel like there was another one at, at Crystal Palace. Talk to most Man City fans and they'll tell you a goal of two rays that was hugely important that they think quite fondly of. So I think him leaving, yes, there'll there'll be some baggage that they can let go of now with him departing scene left. Um, but I think at the same time, 
and this is why I think they put that plaque up to him at the academy, there is an appreciation for what he did in terms of helping them establish themselves as a big player in the game. Because at that point, for me at least, there were money and good intention, and he turned that into money, good intention, and achievement. Yeah, I would I would largely agree with that. I think there's a million a million things I could say. I could literally talk alone for 30 minutes to myself about the impact Yaya Toure has had both on myself and, and Manchester City. And I think you're right in saying that he is kind of that marquee signing that took them from one level to another. And from his performance, he did that as well. And I, a lot of people will point to David Silva, Sergio Aguero. And those guys did move from big-ish clubs, Valencia and, and Atletico Madrid respectively. But, you know, Yaya Toure moved from Barcelona and a Barcelona that played under Pep Guardiola. And I think he is the, the player that, along with Silva and company to some extent, that is very much responsible for where Manchester City are now. And we were kind of talking about this before um, we hit record. You were saying, you know, Manchester City is very much the the ugly duckling um, from high school that has turned into like this really, really attractive person later on in life. And obviously now that they're competing in a in a Champions League setting and they're winning league titles by by some margin and, and they have this beautiful style of football that they kind of push across the globe. All of that is is not possible without the the efforts of Yaya Toure and without trying to sound like a like an insane Manchester City fan that has about you know fifty of those wires on a on a on a cork board pointing to different conspiracy theories. I do happen to think that the the perception that we have of, of Yaya Toure is largely down to maybe I'm not going to say anything super nefarious but i do think there is some degree of racial bias to the way that we we cover certain players and i think obviously the the, the player in question um probably most nowadays is is raheem sterling but i think a similar thing goes for yaya Toure. i think there are a lot of with the with the age of instant access to a lot of our favorite players with Snapchat and Instagram Live and all these things, there's a lot of personality that we can attach to these people that we hold dearly that we probably will never meet. And with Yaya, that that access was never there because he seems like more of a private guy, and I think he was largely misrepresented by Dimitri Selic. But I think the one large interview that he did after Manchester City won that title where he scored 20 goals from defensive midfield is really telling. And a lot of Manchester City fans and a lot of opposition fans will tell you, oh, you know, the problem with Yaya is that he wasn't willing to try. He wasn't always willing to put forth the effort. And in some games, that that's definitely true. But I think for a player that, like I said, scored 20 goals from defensive midfield, had an amazing career as a defensive and attacking player at defensive midfield, center back, even attacking midfield at some points. We don't hold those achievements, I think, in high enough regard. And I think if you take a white player, if you take Gerard Piquet in in that scenario, and you put the same level of achievement, the same degree of flexibility and you apply it to 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 someone maybe of a different nationality or a different race, and I think I think we look at that a little bit differently. But maybe maybe that's just me. But I, like I said, I think I can say a million million things about my appreciation for my appreciation for Yaya Toure. But 
it will never be enough. So from from a very passionate Manchester City fan, I thank him for everything he has done. But across the way, or formerly across the way, another person that is stepping into relative retirement um, without actually doing so is Wayne Rooney. There are rumors that he might be making his move to DC United. Um, there was some interesting backlash from this one on on Twitter. This week, uh, there was some folks that don't follow MLS and some folks that do follow MLS that were making comments on this. Myself, I'm not a huge supporter of the American game, unfortunately. I probably should be more so. But it's a weird one for me because I haven't, maybe it's a, with a degree of bias that I haven't seen Rooney in the, in the best light in the recent years. I don't really think he's that good anymore. I think you can look at this in a different, couple different ways. But, for example, Zlatan, I, I believe, was... He he arrived at LA Galaxy on a free, if I if I remember correctly. Like there was no transfer fee. What they will have to pay, obviously, is his wages. But with Rooney, and I think this is the biggest criticism of the the transfer for me is that he's not going to be free. He's going to be about twelve million dollars um, supposedly if he does make that move. And for DC United and really MLS clubs, clubs in general, I think they're on a completely different financial spectrum than any club in the Premier League. So to make a move for a player that I think has seen his best days by some considerable distance for a significant amount of money in a, in an MLS setting, I think kind of isn't the best move. But I mean, you're you're more of the MLS expert. So so what do you think about this one? Um, <clears throat> I thought S- Sebastian Salazar uh, really hit the nail on the head with this one for ESPN FC. He had a, a, a somewhat um, feisty debate with his colleagues on there, which was basically to say that a lot of people are justifying this transfer as think of the bums on seats he'll draw. This is a huge statement of intent. All of these kind of things that you often see when an aging European star trots themselves out into MLS. Granted, that has diminished in frequency in these last few years as less and less uh, players make it over to MLS kind of post-30s from Europe. But I think what Sebastian really hit the nail on the head was is that really the DC United fan base, and I would back this up but caveat with the fact that I haven't been to a DC game in maybe four or five years, is not actually very English heavy. It's a lot more Latino based. Um, the fact that you know one of the leading fan groups is the Barra Brava kind of gives an indication of that. And I think if you gave uh, those fans a survey or a straw poll and said, okay, you can have a Miguel Almiron or a Wayne Rooney. I think they pick Miguel Almiron every day. Um, I think at the same time, I have personal reservations about signing a player that will put bums on seats because I think it's a real misnomer that a Wayne Rooney or whoever will get you repeat business. because actually, Especially if they suck. Exactly. Because for lack actually, of a better word. You what know? will happen is you'll get the casual fan or you'll get the fan who loves European football come want to watch that player once to say they've seen that player live and then never come back. You essentially need to captivate them by playing good football first and foremost um, and then also by actually having a plan and a project that says, okay, we're going for MLS Cup this year or our aim is to win CONCACAF Champions League within five years. I appreciate they may not sound sexy, but you just need to look at Atlanta. Atlanta don't have any what I would call big name European stars. Yes, Almiron is big in, in 
uh, South America, but I don't believe that all 60 odd thousand of those Atlanta fans are South American or, or of that lineage at least. So, so actually it, it kind of proves the point that really you need something for the, the supporters to invest in. So they stay with the team long term. Now it's not to say that the two notions of being invested and, and signing European are mutually exclusive of each other. Not at all. I think they can be, but I think if your aim is just to sign a play in the hopes that it boosts your attendance, that is less of um, a success. The other thing I think it's important to remember is Wayne Rooney's been playing since he was 16. He's now 32. He has played a number of games, season on season on season, and so his legs will have a lot of miles in them. I think because of that, you have to be very self-aware of the players you're putting around someone like Wayne Rooney. And I have drawn the comparison a few times with Andrea Pilo here, because if you're not going to put pace, movement, or the uh, qualities that will help almost mask, for want of a better word, the deficiencies of this big-name designated player you're signing, then all you're going to do is expose them and make them look poor. And if they're not playing well, that same group of, of day-trippers that we talked about aren't going to bother coming. Because for, for all the allure of seeing Wayne Rooney play live, they want to see him do something as well. They want to see him score a goal or bend a free kick in or hit a beautiful pass. That was definitely what was happening with Pirlo. And yet, in the case of him, it, it was really hard for him in year one because he had no legs around him. Whereas Frank Lampard felt a little bit more geared towards. So it's one, it's one of those things where I think you need to come at it from a lot of different angles. They're not going to be paying as much as I thought they were, which I think is, is a little bit... Um, down to the the British press being very ambiguous about um, what the the salary was going to be. Personally, I'd pass on the deal, but I'm looking at this far more from a technical playing standpoint than I am a marketing standpoint. Just and even then, when I try and put my marketing head on, it just doesn't sit right. If I'm very honest. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to spend too long on this, but I, I would largely agree with everything you said there. I think, like, I I, I think. You hit the you kind of hit the nail on the head in saying that if you look at a lot of these players, and for me, Frank Lampard is a good example. And maybe maybe I'm incorrect in saying this, and I think you watched him a lot more than I did in in sort of his MLS term. But the 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 perception that that I had, and I think a lot of people had of Frank Lampard when he was in Europe, even when he went when he made his move to Manchester City, is that he was this guy that put his head down, worked hard, was willing to do a lot for the team both attacking and defensive he was never really going to shirk a defensive obligation because he felt he was you know he was above that or anything but i mean that perception at least maybe in the beginning from the things i heard from the dedications that he had to maybe his broadcasting job to the offers that were being made in that department he he the the perception changes and that's not it's because of the the change of environment. It's because those players, they have less of a reason to care. And maybe we might have always seen them as like this hardworking player, as this person that's that's going to give it all for the team. That that changes when you're in the latter stages of your career and you really don't have that much of a reason. You're not working for an England call-up. You're not working for, you know, to, to try to get a move to a better club eventually. This is the last bus stop of your career. And you are essentially just collecting a paycheck and realistically i think a lot of the time they are advised by their you know management or whatever you know maybe make a move to the u.s because the u.s is a really big brand market and if you want to do something after your career is over if you want to sell you know candy or shampoo 
it's going to be a good move because you'll have more um, recognition in a very big uh, market. I, th- I think that's that's kind of the motivation for a lot of these. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. These things, but maybe I could be wrong. Anyways, I think we will move on to the questions section now, and we do have some good ones this week. So our first question is going to be from Mark Vero. I think I'm uh, saying that right, Dodd. Um, And he says, with De Gea nailed on for the Golden Glove now, is it really a pointless award as the leading holder is Joe Hart and Peter Cech with four, respectively? I think both they have four. And it says more about the defense and style of the team than the keeper. Hmm. I see. I see the point they're making. It's a very good point um, because, yeah, it's called a back five for a reason because they all essentially influence each other, and and mm-hmm. we can, I think, in football, get caught in the trap of of um, idolizing the individual and uh, just appreciating what this one person does without considering what around them is is a play in making that happen. I do still think, though, that there there is a, a warrant for a Golden Glove just because, in the case of De Gea, I would argue a lot of the time he's made saves and kept clean sheets in spite of his defence, not because of them. Um, oh, yeah, 100%. And I think there are certainly cases of that in the past. I always, don't know why, but I always remember Scott Carson um, at Charlton many years ago who was sensational. And did not have a great defence in front of him. So my counter-argument to the question would be, just as much as there are defences that significantly help protect a goalkeeper, I also think there are defences that do nothing for a goalkeeper and they shine in spite of of the players that are in front of them. So yeah, I I think it has validity within the the realm of, of football. Yeah, I would largely agree with the sentiment that um, that the question kind of put forth. I think, for example, like just as you're saying, there are defenses that don't do any favors for a goalkeeper. I think there obviously are defenses that do their goalkeepers a lot of um, a lot of favors in that degree. And, and De Gea this year, I don't think is one of them. I think the fact that he has has I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but has he been given the the best Manchester United's best player of the of the year award yet, or is that something I'm I'm dreaming of? Yes, our good friend David. Um, David was, was was in attendance of this was, uh, of this wonderful achievement. So I think in that respect that, that that's a really you would never want to 
it's never a bad thing when one of your players is really good, but it's almost oxymoronic or paradoxical in some sense that your goalkeeper has to be your best player in this era of attacking football because then – and people have written about this. I think there's a really good piece on The Ringer about it that kind of talks about if De, if De Gea has to be making these saves, there's, then there's clearly something wrong with your defense. And I think the tactical point that I at one point kind of thought of was, well – Maybe Mourinho is sacrificing a, a little bit of defensive solidity in terms of the aggressive uh, nature of his his low block pressing system because he wants more on the counter. And I think to some extent that's true. But at the same time, Manchester United largely overperformed their expected goals against this season, so they should have conceded a lot more. And a lot of that is down to De Gea. But you can't really ride that luck forever. And I don't think it'd be a very new thing for Manchester United to all of a sudden break you know, break the the norm of things and 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 for them to go on win um, major trophies by consistently overperforming something or depending on a goalkeeper to do that because I don't think you can do that. I think you have to use De Gea in 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 the way that he's been used, but use it to a lesser extent. And so, yeah, I, I would say that it, it's a the way that those awards, especially the Golden Glove, is calculated is kind of a weird thing and. It's 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 just a weird one. So I, I, I like that question, though. I, I, I really think it's an insightful one. But the next one we will be covering is from Alexander Davinson or Davison. And he says, do you think Conte purposely benched Hazard and Giroud on Wednesday? So Chelsea missed out on the top four and confirmed his own sacking. Now, obviously, there is a certain degree of uh, sarcasm to this tweet, but I mean, what have you made of 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 Chelsea missing out on the top four? This is kind of their cycle of going up and down, isn't it? Yeah, it it sounds uh, almost paradoxical to say that Conte and Chelsea are the perfect marriage when it looks like he's going to leave in the summer, um, because I think for for a long time Chelsea have been very much boom and bust. Um, that that in itself, and and I've seen Chelsea fans make this point. That say compared to to Spurs, um, or, or you know maybe even Liverpool, who've had that consistency for the last few years, what have they realistically won? There's no Premier League titles there, whereas Chelsea have won Premier League titles, and I think if you're willing to ride the waves on that one, yes, it will deliver trophies for Chelsea because they've won a Champions League, for example, and and arguably during the entire Roman Abramovich tenure. They have been a team that has operated purely on the short term. That's been expensive, though, and I think with the market shifting its its margins in terms of what is a top bracket signing, I'm not convinced Chelsea can can compete anymore. So actually, now they're having to think. Well, maybe stability could be good for us because we're going to need someone who can blood a Tammy Abraham, a Loftus Cheek, and make them into that top level player that usually we tend to just go out and buy. Um, so I, I think this is definitely an important season for Chelsea because you know whenever they don't make the Champions League, it impacts them financially. But I also think this is an opportunity for change and one that they have to take. Um, the the market for managers is is at a funny time. I wouldn't say there's a huge wealth of candidates available, and and some of the more prominent ones like Simeone are more in line with, with what they're trying to get away from um, in terms of of having the potential to be boom and bust, I should say. But Allegri is there. Allegri could be tempted. If you give him consistency, if you give him 
um, confidence and I think that I think support. that kind of goes against the the Chelsea model though isn't it because as I've kind of talked about a few times on 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 the podcast I think you know Chelsea like to ride this wave of let's not call it inconsistency but let's call it a higher degree of variance if we want to be kind to them um, because I think it kind of fits their their buying model I think they can go back and forth between these teams and maybe be one of the only sides to truly perpetuate a more defensive style of football because of the players that they have and the players that they they want to keep and I think obviously the, their future plans are very much dependent on whether Aiden Hazard stays but for me at least, I would hope, because I really have a great uh, amount of respect for him and I really like him, that Allegri would not choose to go to Chelsea because I I think he thrives with a with a degree of continuity and I, I think it, oh, he would be best served to <laughs> he would he would be best served to to have a, a more consistency and less you know underfunding or at least not sporadic funding at the very beginning instead of what Chelsea have done with, with Conte and stuff like that. So. Um, I, I think that's that's kind of the thing with Chelsea is that they look to be inconsistent because that's the only way that they can justifiably survive in in, in the top six. But speaking of managers, um, obviously we were just talking about Allegri, but if uh, Mahidir Mukundi, sorry if I'm butchering some of these, asks if Allegri decides to join the Premier League or I guess anywhere else, who should take charge at Juventus? Ooh. Uh... I'm never great at picking managers. I have to confess. It's um, weird though because there, the, as you're saying there, like there aren't a wealth of managers around right now that I think a lot of people would be clamoring to get. There's no one on a sabbatical. There's no one, you know, really without a job besides Tuchel, who has supposedly been um, already kind of welcomed with open arms in Paris. Yeah, uh, you would say like, yeah, I want them to take charge of a of a major project in Europe. Um, Carlo Ancelotti, maybe the only one that I yeah, can think of. Yeah, Carlo Ancelotti could work. Um, I mean, Sari's going to be way too expensive for for Juventus. With that, you think million. expensive? Yeah, because the, the the eight million buyout clause, isn't it? Is it? Is oh it yeah, yeah, you're right. That You're kind right, of right. Kyber. I don't. I don't think Juventus play that because yeah, I don't think. I just don't think they do. Um. It's interesting, though, to think about that, if we can go down that rabbit hole for a second. One thing that I noticed um, after the, you know, all of the, the fanfare and the parades of Manchester City's, you know, kind of muted celebration of a title win this season is that they, uh, I think Guardiola is very, very key to the to the message and the, the global nature of City Football Group and the, and the message and kind of aesthetic that they want to put across um, to the entire world as a as a footballing organization, because of this aesthetic football that he he does perpetuate and that he has been successful um, in perpetuating now in England in his second season. And I think to to think about for a second that for a second in terms of sorry at Juventus, they are another team that is looking for sort of this global domination. They released like essentially what was a a propaganda series on Netflix about them as a club, um, and I. You know they don't have the most aesthetically pleasing style of football that I think a lot of people would say, but they do have a winning style of football um, under Conte and Allegri. But Sari would be an interesting one because obviously he would have the financial resources to perpetuate the style of football that he did at, at Napoli, which has been, um, you know, widely regarded as probably one of the best in in Europe, um, if not definitely Italy. So 
it could be really expensive, but I think if we're going along that train of thought, that city football group train of thought, it is a it is a really nice style of football to to have in terms of marketing. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, that's that almost makes me question whether Juve will be so desperate to hold on to um, Allegri for that reason. Because that's the thing, I don't even know if there's a wealth of Italian candidates who could, could take over. Because I don't, I don't think they go backwards. I don't think they go to Conte. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so either. What is Conte's next move? Let's just we're we're taking this question and we're just branching off of it. I mean, what is Conte's next move from here? What do you think? Well, he's in a good position in theory because he he can turn around and say, "Look, I, I was given nothing at Chelsea and turned them round for that for that season. We won the title." And then mm-hmm. I wanted to push on, but they didn't. So he's in a very strong bargaining position. Yeah, um, I don't think he. I don't think his reputation is taking a massive hit after. I mean, what was a poor title title defense? Yeah, but you you know you can point to different things, and you can also point to Pep Guardiola being Pep Guardiola and yeah, say, I mean, well, can, you know, that's ju- that. That's the thing with Conte; he can very easily and not look stupid say. Look, he got to spend fifty million on a left back he didn't even use, and I didn't get anything <laughs> like that. You know exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I had to, I had to settle for for Alvaro Morata, who, <laughs> to be fair, was not his first choice, and I think they yeah, didn't even want him. I think we're starting to see maybe why that that Morata, that Morata's mentality really fluctuates from confident to can't hit a barn door. Um, so so yeah, he's in a really strong position. Um, I think a lot of the Italian clubs are set. Personally, they, they, there's always going to be. Um, links with with inter um i think i've seen a number of those but i kind of like spalletti there i think that works i I think it works too germany could be could be interesting um i don't believe dortmund have sorted their replacement yet have they no i don't think so i don't think so no i mean they they have like they have this weird sort of always rumored never actually seeming like it's going to happen or in some cases actually it came close but this weird relationship um tenuous relationship with lucien favre who uh is still at nice but obviously did not enjoy the same success that he did with them in his secondary season but i think you can you can point that to a lot of things a lot of that first season was not necessarily statistical overperformance, but there is there was a reason for a drop-off um but yeah, supposedly I think I it, you know if I had to bet someone, I think Lucien Favre would probably take over at, at Dortmund next. I mean, Dortmund and Conte could be kind of fun. I'm not gonna not gonna lie that that kind of fan base. But it's such a weird marriage of like Italian Conte. Well, I couldn't imagine anyone more Italian. If you you can take Conte and put him like on a spaghetti can. And that is the most Italian thing you're ever going to see in your entire life. Like to to mash that up with like the beer drinking, you know, yellow wall hopping Dortmund fans is such like a it, it doesn't it's you know, it almost doesn't make sense to me. But, you know, anything can happen in the crazy world of football, right? Yeah. I mean, I look, I could be painting in really broad brushstrokes. And I know we have a Dortmund fan who listens, uh, Piotr, who is very knowledgeable on the team, as you would expect. Mm-hmm. But I th- I think to the intensity of Klopp, Tuchel, um, and Peabos, you could argue maybe didn't thrive because he lacked that. And then you look at that same trait, albeit manifested in a different way with Conte, and say, well, maybe he then takes the Jaden Sancho's and the Pulisic's and and you know finds a way to get them to to really thrive mm-hmm. in, with that same intensity. So. 
that's the thing. Personally, I, I could probably sit and tell you players that these teams could sign and should sign, but when it comes to managers, it just seems a lot more difficult because I think... Maybe I'm wrong in this, but it's a thought I've had a lot recently, that it seems to me in the modern era, so many more teams have, and it's an, and it's extension through their supporters, have an identity on how they feel they should play. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like... Um, you know, Barcelona with short passing and tiki-taka that the Guardiola hates. Um, whether it's Arsenal playing beautiful football, which is quite ambiguous, um, or even your West Ham's and the West Ham way. Like, I, I could be extrapolating this out incorrectly just from, from England, but it seems very prominent to me when I watch English football. That everyone has an identity on how their team plays. And... When someone comes in and goes against that, it leads to a really awful situation. Um, and in some cases, it, it highlights why it's a bad fit, like Sam Allardyce and Everton, because he was never going to play the kind of type of football A, they needed, or their supporters wanted. To be clear, I am not excusing what he's done. It's been terrible. It's been boring. He should be sacked. <laughs> but at the same time, it does feel to me like, fans are a lot more confident and clubs are a lot more confident about telling a manager how their team plays rather than saying, here's the keys to the castle, do what you want to do, and if it's successful, we'll herald you. If it's not, we'll pack your bags for you. Yeah, I think I think I think the most successful clubs are the ones that have, like you're saying there, an idea of the kind of football that they want to play and they look to appoint someone that's going to perpetuate that. I think that goes further to say that you will look at your squad and say, maybe you do some data scouting, maybe you do some analytical scouting and say, this is the best type of football that we think we can create with this group of players, which which is what I think Chelsea have done largely. And then appoint a manager that, that works with that. And then when that doesn't work anymore, you're only getting rid of one or two people, the manager and maybe a player or two instead of, trying to wash the squad every time you have a different manager that being said and this will be my last digression um sort of on deviation on the question the an interesting thought that i've had uh, recently is obviously ernesto valverde is is going to achieve something magnificent with this year's barcelona being an undefeated la liga team is is an incredible achievement and it just kind of makes me think nobody had really wowed when he was appointed at Barcelona, everyone was like, who, who is this? If you didn't watch the Liga, if they did, then they were like, does he really deserve that type of thing? And I think the same thing kind of goes for Luis Enrique before that. These are managers of clubs in La Liga that, by all stretches of the imagination, they had done well. But one would have, wouldn't have earmarked them for the job uh, previous to their appointment, right? And I think in that sense, the reason that it has worked is because they've looked at that of the style of football that those managers wanted to play or were playing to the best of their ability with the, with the lesser ingredients, let's say, than what is available to them at Barcelona. And they're essentially not only from a talent perspective, because we know the Real Madrid's and the Barcelona's of the world, since they have such buying power in La Liga, the same as PSG, the same as Bayern do for their respective leagues, they pick up players that stylistically match up with them. I think they're starting, at least for Barcelona, they're starting to do the same thing with managers. They're starting to say, okay, do you or do you have a desire to play this this possession football? Do you have the ability to implement it? Are you good enough in that respect to to have this possession dominant um, style? 
because that's what we have to play as as a team that is going to enjoy the majority of the possession. And if you do, we can give you the ingredients and and, and the best possible players in order to succeed in that in that context. And I think, you know, whenever whenever Valverde leaves, I can almost, you know, I'd I'd almost bet the house and say that Kike Setien, the manager of Betis, that plays really sort of tactically pleasing football with the ball, high pressing, you know, high lines, all these things will probably be high on the list, if not the next Barcelona manager because of the style that he wants to play. He obviously hasn't had enormous success. I mean, we're not talking about titles or anything, but he has gotten Batiste, I believe, back into Europe in the Europa League spots. So it's interesting to see how these le- how these teams, um, different different to the Premier League, are starting to almost cultivate and farm the league from a stylistic perspective um, for, for managers because of how they influence the league and how they m- sort of make the rest of the teams around them play. But it's just a, a crazy, crazy thought that I had there. Um, let's see. We got some more good questions here. A lot of England questions. I know the World Cup is coming up, but you know those, those questions are always interesting. But What's your what's your first eleven? I mean, I'm curious to hear this. I think everybody probably has a different answer. But what what's your first eleven, Chris, for England? Uh, four centre backs, two <laughs> wing backs, um, three midfielders, and a striker. I think <laughs> as as it stands right now, probably Jordan Pickford, um, a back. Th- oh, this is a good question. Uh, You're going with Jordan Pickford. Yeah, it, we're uh, already got an issue then. <laughs> um, of of the group, I don't trust Joe Hart personally. Um, no, no, don't just Nick hard. Pope is yeah, he's good, he's good. Um, but I like Pickford's distribution. Um, you don't like Mr. Butland? Yeah, Butland's a good shout as well. I just feel like he's not had the greatest of seasons with Stoke. Um, Stoke's terrible. You know, that's yeah, not, that's, that's not mean, his. That's it hasn't always been his fault, definitely. Um, yeah. Right wing back, I am gonna go. Are you going Pep Guardiola style and putting Kyle Walker at center back? Or are you going indeed. Right? Um, you are. Okay, perfect. Kyle Walker right center back. John Stone's in the okay. middle. Okay. And I'm going to massively indulge myself and say big Jamal LaSalle's at left center back. Big Jamal um, at left center back. What a bold, bold strategy. Yeah, get like, I think get one proper, proper defender. Proper there. guy. A okay. guy who gets John, John, the thing. The, 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 the difficulty with that, if I'm going against you, is I'm saying... John Stones is trusting Jamal far too much with the ball and giving him a weird pass when they're under pressure, and then he's he's not he's not he's not working out well there. <laughs> I think Jamal's okay on the ball. I think his technique looks very very awkward. I will give you that. He does not. I joked with someone recently. It might have been um, uh, the analytics chat, Mark. I can't remember his last name. Um, uh, Mark Thompson. I think yeah, Mark Thompson. Thank you. He does all the great stuff on centre backs. I joked that he yeah. does look like a. A cat burglar in a Looney Tunes cartoon. When he runs. <laughs> like he's got a very weird gait to him, but actually he's he's getting better on the ball, especially when he has passing lanes and such like things open. If if there's no movement, then you know I think Barresi and Bobby Moore would struggle sometimes. But anyway, so I think he goes there left wing back. I would go Ryan Bertrand just because I think he's played the most. So um, old though. Yeah, I mean, Danny Rose is lovely, but it's all theory. It's not actual practice this season because he hasn't played enough. Right. Um, midfield, <laughs> oh, I'm going to indulge again. I'm going to go John Joe. I'm going to go John oh Joe my. in the middle. This is basically um, just Newcastle 11. I only, I only say, the reason I say this is because I know no one else will pick this first and foremost. <laughs> but also, 
And I saw a lot of Spurs fans say this the other night. Some of the passes he's been hitting lately are exactly mm-hmm. what England will need when they play a Panama or a Tunisia or even when they try and catch a Belgium on the counter. But, but you've essentially just gone bad at Danny Drinkwater with John Joe Shelby. Danny Drinkwater just, doesn't hit those kind of passes. You, Dan, you've got angrier Danny Drinkwater. <laughs> th- th- this, is the, this is the thing. So I will counter this into it. Angry Danny Drinkwater. John Joe Shelby's been booked twice since mid-December. Twice, and he's played almost every game for Newcastle. If, if not every game, I think. At the same time, I am a big fan of Danny Drinkwater because I just am weird like that. I don't think Danny Drinkwater is hitting the passes that John Joe Shelby is hitting with both feet. This is this is the thing. John Joe Shelby actually is quite a two-footed player, even though it doesn't seem like it. And I don't think as good as Danny Drinkwater is that he's hitting the same kind of passes that John Joe is. And as you'll notice, I keep repeating the same point to reinforce it to make it sound like I've got more... To my casing. I'm, I'm sick of the John Joe propaganda. Move on. Who else you got? John Joe in the um, Eric Dyer. center there. Eric Dyer. Okay, that's I like that, but I don't know how he works out with John Joe. And then let's see, maybe an attacking mid in there. An attacking mid in front. I have Raheem Sterling who can float. Okay. Um, okay. And I then get I, on board with that. I have Harry Kane obviously up front. Mm-hmm. And then wow, this is really lopsided. I was gonna say Jamie Vardy just because he'll stretch things wow. and he'll sort of he'll, he'll be a nuisance. He'll, this he'll, this group is a hundred percent going out in the group stages. Um, yeah, but it'll be a laugh though. It'll be a great experience. It'd be a great time. It'd be fantastic. Um, um, plus, I yeah. picked this on the fly as well. I've not really sat down and no, yeah. And, I mean, but I think this yeah. is all fun. This is all shits um, and gigs, you know. I mean, you could you could maybe throw Nathan Redmond in there if you're feeling comfortable like a, a, a traditional winger type I, I i love nathan redmond i think he is it, it was something there was a t- statistic from the wonderful that app that is stats zone um that said you know when he scored when he scored in the game previous to the last one against swansea it was his only his third or first something like that first or third goal one of the two um goal of this premier league season and it, it he had scored it after taking 40 shots which is pretty incredible but it, it it you know goes along with the point that i think ted knitson on a, on a podcast very long time ago said um that you know if someone kind of teaches which is this is similar to the path that um what's his name lorenzo insignia took which is that he was this shoot happy winger that was just shooting all the time doing doing these crazy things averaging crazy shot numbers per game but when you have a player that's at least in their mind, able to get into positions where they should shoot. That's actually a really good thing. And so, if I think if somebody can really get their hands on on Nathan Redmond, and when Pep Guardiola shouted shouted at him after the after the after Southampton and City played each other for the first time this season, I was kind of encouraged because I would I would like to see Redmond under Pep. Um, if someone really got their hands on him and showed him, hey, this is when you should shoot. Not not take away the volume, but just refine the the selection a little bit. Um, I think he could he could he could be a player. That's that's a player I'd like to see. You know. Yeah, I'd, I'd like I say I do I do like Redmond. Um, yeah, so I think uh, I, I want to almost pull up the the team just to see if there's not someone I'm really missing. Um, but yeah, I know I knew that mine was going to be pretty cavalier because personally I'm not a huge fan of uh, what do you call them. Jack Wilshire. Um, obviously, Deli Ali doesn't make it in in that projected eleven. If I was gonna not play Vardy, I would mm-hmm. probably put Jesse Lingard in there. 
because I think really you put Jesse Lingard Deli Ali, yes, because I think Jesse is really? more. I almost think he's more flexible as a player. Not in the Deli, Deli Ali, though, put his I leg think... behind his head. Where I mean, like positionally, tactically. Let me just pull this up. I don't there think Delhi is able to play wide and inside and all this kind of stuff. And you, you might be right about that, but he, I think, like I said on a, on a different podcast with Adam, and he loved this point, was that you know, Delhi's supposed dip in form is more of him changing roles than anything else. But anyways, there is a good chart here that we'll talk about in a second or talk about right now. It says it's the data is from Stratabet. The analyst that made this graph is Ashwin Rahman. He's a good guy. Uh, which players create the most one-on-one chances for teammates in this season? Kevin De Bruyne, a league above everybody else. Like seriously, the the chart is crazy. The bar for Kevin De Bruyne like takes up the whole thing. Everybody is about everybody else is about halfway. The second player, Mister Hennage, is Christian Eriksen. The third is Alexis Sanchez. The fourth player, which isn't too far off the rest of them, is Deli Alley. Okay. So he 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 does some good thing. His passing, which hasn't been good in the past, I will mm-hmm. admit, is getting a lot better. And and like I said, I think it's a change of roles for him, and that's why we're seeing less, you know, Crystal Palace flick it over the head, hit it <laughs> in, Deli Alley than than we are a sort of a connective tissue Deli Alley. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I th- I think that's the ultimate sort of question or almost quandary with this kind of situation is. Do you try and mirror how how when it comes to selecting the England team, how much bending do you do towards putting the players in a system mirroring the one that they play at a club level? I, so, I think that's a very good point. So a lot, a lot of these players, like John John Stones, I don't think City play with a back three often. I don't think I'm, I'm waiting to be not not really this season. Four three three is the main thing, but towards the back end of the season, which he has not been involved in because of a groin injury. Um, but yeah, you're right. This season has very very rarely been a back three. Whereas when I look at the squad, and I completely forgot about Kieran Trippier, who I think actually should probably start for me at right wing back. In in that case, he mm-hmm. does play as as a wing back for for Tottenham, so we'll know that role very right. well. I think at the same time that's kind of the big bummer about losing Oxford Chamberlain was you could put say Eric Dyer and Chamberlain next to each other and you know that there's quite a decent balance there because Dyer's played with a back three, Chamberlain has occasionally, but that's not really what you're sort of putting him in. And it's more that you're using the fact Chamberlain is used to being allowed at Liverpool to make bursting runs through the lines and support um, the attack from from deeper positions, so it's it's that kind of thing where you do, and I, th- I sometimes think this is why Spain have have really thrived because actually the the whole it's Barcelona and national team kits that worked because the players that you took from Real Madrid were good enough that they could adapt to that style fairly quick. But I don't think any of them were trying to choose my words really carefully here were sort of fulcrums of every anything does that make sense like Javi, yeah. Iniesta, Busquets those I were the actually, ones that sort of drove everything and, and put the ball into the most dangerous positions whereas a Ramos or a Casillas they, their workload wasn't complicated it was very simple it was just pass the ball to here or there so you could teach that real easy so I think yeah. almost England and Southgate granted he's a bit low on time as I look at the calendar has to identify who are my best or invert, inverted commas or most influential players, and how can I make it so that the success they have at team level, at club level, 
is mirrored with the national team in the way that we play. I, I really like that idea because I wrote a pitch about it like a month ago, which nobody picked up, but that's okay. <laughs> um, uh, but I do agree, I do largely agree with that because I think, and we'll just kind of talk about this as a, as a closing topic. Um, like you say, I think the the basis of the pitch was that you know, international football is very rudimentary because of the limited amount of time that you have in order to implement a, a tactical system, right? And so a lot of the time in these international tournaments, we see very rudimentary, simplistic, counterattacking football be the dominant force unless you have the ability to implement something else as Germany have in the past, as Spain have famously. And I think you're right in saying that that it is about mirroring a system. And I think the best system for England to mirror and the most amount of players that they have that play in that sort of system is Tottenham. And I think it's a, it's, a, it's a pressing style that would do well to put a lot of teams that are maybe slightly better than them, at least as a, as a unit, under pressure. And it, it would just as well do in breaking down the teams that look to take a more defensive approach against them. And I think they have, through Deli Alley, through Kyle Walker, who's formerly part of that system, through Eric Dyer, who's an essential part of that team, and lastly, Harry Kane, a lot of players that can do really well in that style but I think we can kind of talk about that all day we'll do one more question let's see if we can find a good one to close us out how much money do Liverpool need to spend to win the Premier League title next season um I think it's more down to style than it is anything else I know there's a lot of like champions championing championing sorry um this this Liverpool team but I think I saw a lot of I saw some ratings today um, for managers in the Premier League and people talking about, you know, Pep, largely nines, eights out of tens, but they take off a point or two because of the un- supposed underachievement in the Champions League. But I mean, what about, you know, the, so much of the Champions League as as kind of the agenda that I have subconsciously and consciously pushed on this podcast over the past couple of weeks is like, the Champions League is so much down to luck. If Manchester United had drawn Liverpool and those two Manchester or Manchester and Liverpool teams met instead of Manchester City and 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 uh, and Liverpool had met, then I think then I think we would be seeing Manchester United going through in that specific situation. Not only because they did get the results against them in the league, but also because the style, like I like I've mentioned many a time. The stylistic advantage that Manchester United has over Liverpool is is really important in these situations. So, I, you know, I, I think it's it's really difficult, especially with Pep Guardiola existing, for me to justify and say Liverpool are good. They'll continue to get better, and they're going to be good enough stylistically to win the league because ultimately we know what they struggle against, and I don't think there is so much that. Klopp can do regardless of the players that he adds to elevate them beating the teams that they should be beating more consistently than they already are that's a great point um I think I think that's the thing is that sometimes we try and quantify improvement by money when realistically there is no dollar amount you know what you have to do is you have to isolate what are the weaknesses and and the best solutions to fix them. And I appreciate that might sound really ambiguous and at the same time, maybe obvious, but I think that's the thing to say, how much do Liverpool need to spend? It's, it's not, it's not a dollar amount. It's definitely not a dollar amount. What they need realistically, I would say is possibly a goalkeeper 
not necessarily to replace Karius, but so that you're not relying on Simon Mignolet because I don't think he's good enough, so I would sell him straight away. There's a decent shout that they need a striker to replace Firmino because I think Solanke is a few rungs behind him. Um, and Solanke needs regular games, not 20-minute cameos. And then thereafter, I mean, if you want to get really sort of putting out every fire in the village, a better left-back to sit behind at Robertson because Moreno isn't reliable. Um, maybe... Maybe a centre back to, um, to to sort of fill things out a bit, so that again, Lovren isn't starting. But but these are all you have to think at the same time. What is financially viable? Um, in so much as can you can the team literally afford to make that many purchases? Is it a good time to buy? Some sometimes the market dictates that there is not a, a wealth of opportunities or candidates to fill the void that you need so you almost have to accept that this is not that year and the, the thing that I think that the reason excuse me that I think that rings really true with Liverpool is Klopp has stayed for seven years at his two previous clubs so I would wager barring anything going spectacularly wrong he will probably be at Liverpool for seven years now the fact that again Van Dijk comes in this year Keir comes in this year Everything about what he's done so far is building part of a project and building them to something. Now, if that something is a Champions League in a few weeks, fantastic. Then he's just justified why he needs to stay for the next three or four years. If it's not, it could be a Premier League in year five, year six, whatever. But I think that's the thing with Liverpool is I'm noticing a lot more forward planning with this group. And I think that is highlighted by the fact that Keir, Van Dijk and all these are coming in. I think, folks, it's time to end this week's edition of the Front 3 Q&A podcast. Thank you for joining us yet again. Chris, if there is anything that people should be checking out, what would you like them to do? Oh, let me count the ways. Um, first up, we have um, a piece ended with American Analysis Evolved on Marcos Urena, the Costa Rican striker, and why a goal-scoring forward can also be a good player. And that is not as paradoxical as it sounds. As you've probably guessed, paradoxical is my word of the week. Um, it's essentially a deep dive on why he's the most influential player for LAFC. And I think it actually, even though it sounds pretty MLS heavy, can be extrapolated out to any league and any team. Um, and shows why sometimes you need a piano carrier as a striker to make your piano players behind him play better. Um, I also spoke to Romain Gaul, who is currently in Sweden after a tough time in MLS. And... The differences between sort of um, the French system of development with the American system of development, whether Sweden could be a viable path for um, Americans to, to try and get game time. I also, for any friends of ours in the Seattle area, but I think I'll be allowed to put this online in a couple of weeks, I've just finished something with Magnus Wolf Eichram, formerly of Man United, who told me a beautiful story about Sir Alex Ferguson that I will regale you with on a future podcast. Um, and I also, just to finish off the MLS theme, this week I did a piece on Dwayne De Rosario and its impact in MLS. Um, and something also on Mesut Ozil, as, as I frantically remember. Yeah, I did something on Mesut Ozil and why scapegoating him changes nothing about the real problems that haunt Arsenal. So yeah, you can pick a bunch of different stuff there if you go through my timeline. So many, so many, so many good things, folks, from Chris. For myself... 
you'll be seeing something soon uh, on ISCO, Champions League final type stuff. And then hopefully something on Manchester City, maybe a tactics piece on defending. Um, but all of that is yet to come. So you'll get more specifics on that. You'll see it on the Front 3 Twitter. Whereas you can find all of us, me, Adam, Chris, Lawrence, and Dave. Um, thanks for sticking around, and we'll see you next time. Community was born three, they still believe, and that's the magic number.